A note before we start. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse and suicide. Act 3. A Reading from Metamorphosis by Ovid. The king of gods once felt the burning joy and sighed for lovely Ganymede of Troy. Long was he puzzled to assume a shape most fit and expeditious for the rape. A bird was proper. Yet he scorns to wear any but that which made his thunder bear. Down with his masquerading wings he flies and bears the little Trojan to the skies. Where now, in robes of heavenly purple dressed, he serves the nectar at the Almighty's feast. I spent five days in and around the Fellowship of Friends compound during the week leading up to their predicted apocalypse. Robert Burton's doomsday prophecy and all the end times predictions before it seemed like a way to garner more devotion from his followers, to manipulate them. At Apollo, I saw firsthand how it works on people. It's such a surreal place, detached from reality. The experience was disorienting, intoxicating. Well, it was like being in a dream world. I wanted to understand how Robert has exercised his control. So I started reaching out to more ex-members, like this man. I joined in 1979. He asked me not to use his name because of professional concerns. So I'll be calling him Philip. At the time, I was undergoing what I'd consider to be an identity crisis. I was lost back then as well. I mean, I was looking for a group or something to become part of. And I, I wish I had joined the Peace Corps <laughs> or my life could have been radically different. Philip's story is difficult to hear. A young man fell into the grasp of a powerful leader. He was definitely a father image, you know, and that set the stage for exploitation. After a couple years at Apollo, Philip was selected to move into Robert's home. And this seemed like an honor, a chance to be closer to him. And then one night, he woke me up and asked that we snuggle together in his uh, room. And I got into bed with him. I was frightened. I was, you know, a deer in the headlights. You know, I didn't specifically give my consent. Uh, I was frozen at the time. And looking back, it felt that uh, he was using my body for his own enjoyment. And that became the beginning of the sexual abuse. I spoke to Philip and many others like him who helped build Apollo from the ground up. I traveled across the country talking to ex-members. Through these conversations, I was able to piece together the history of the Fellowship and learn how, for many young men, their devotion led to destruction. 
If you're a child awake in the front row, you don't see the puppeteer. And we are the puppets in a living play. Have you ever thought that the gods wanted a reporter here on the eve of the production? The gods have given signs to us. Quoth the raven, nevermore, nevermore. This is Revelations. I'm Jennings Brown. You're going to hear more from Philip later, but to understand his experience, there's a lot you need to know about how people were brought into the fellowship and what it's like to live at Apollo. Watch out for these mud wasps. My pursuit to understand that took me to Placerville, a former gold rush town in Northern California. It's very peaceful out here though. Oh yes, in fact, I had a deer come into my backyard and have her baby on my lawn. <laughs> It's quite a peaceful spot. That's where I meet this ex-member of the Fellowship. I'm Marlene Dasman, and I was also known as Grace Milton in the school. Why did you become Grace Milton? I became Grace Milton because I had to change my name. Everybody had to have English first and last names. Robert decided that the English names were the only ones that were acceptable. Yeah, it's white supremacist, I think. In the early days, a lot of members anglicized their names at Robert's request. He actually gave them a role, a new character. I should point out, this is also a classic cult move. It's one of the easiest ways to erase your old identity and alienate you from your family. I've been anxious to interview Marlene for months because she had a unique vantage point on the Fellowship's leader in the early years. She was Robert's housekeeper. I was head of household. For a while there, I was spending almost all my time on things that were specifically related to Robert. Cleaning his house, doing his laundry, ironing his underwear. I mean, he had to have his underwear ironed. (laughs) This guy is really sick. Not only was Marlene uniquely positioned in the fellowship, she documented her experience in journals. She kept tapes of Robert teaching, and she wrote a book about her time in the fellowship. She never published it, but she did share it with another thin white duke. I sent a copy to David Bowie. Well, I thought, well, maybe he'd be interested in, uh, I mean, it would make a terrific movie. And he would make a terrific Robert, you know. He thought David Bowie would make it. He could really do Robert well. He sent it back, and it had eyelashes and some of his dyed hair. It was, you know, I mean, he was shedding in it while he was reading it. (laughs) Uh, And then he came out with his song, Loving the Alien, and I thought, hmm, that sounds like like my book. (laughs) I have a kind of, shall we say, a bold approach to the human race. (laughs) Why not? That's great. Yeah, yeah. Marlene was around near the very beginning. She joined three years after the fellowship was founded. I joined the fellowship in 1973 in Santa Barbara. Marlene was 22. She had just graduated from the University of Colorado with a biology degree and moved back home to California. She wanted to pursue a career in herpetology, the study of reptiles. She owned eight snakes and had published research on Mexican lizards. But in her free time, she was studying an esoteric philosophy known as the Fourth Way. 
Basically, it's mindfulness, how to study yourself, how to pick apart every single thing you do if you want to. She planned to go to graduate school, but her science dreams were soon derailed by her spiritual interests. And I was at a party with a fellow biologist, and she said, oh, I found this guy who likes those books you like. So she introduced me to a guy who had been in the fellowship, and he gave me a bookmark. The bookmark. A lot of members and ex-members have told me about the moment they found the bookmark. For many, it was the beginning of their journey into the fellowship, a piece of cardstock that changed the course of their life. Yeah, so I was living in Paris. That was in 1978, and I found a bookmark. It was very old I opened up one of the books, and I saw this bookmark. It had all these numbers There on was it. a phone number for... My girlfriend actually found it, and she called me at work. I've got to get so it. She'd it's also been reading Fourth Way. I reread all the books. I was I reading the book I in the bookstore. We really found something real. I'm looking for a way out of my situation. And found the bookmark. For decades, fellowship members across the world were tasked with going into bookstores and placing fellowship bookmarks into various esoteric books. It was kind of like old-school targeted advertising. And it was very effective. Imagine it. You're in L.A. or New York or Paris. Maybe you're feeling a little lost, and you're just discovering this collection of writing that is supposed to reveal the mysteries of the universe. This philosophy is known as the fourth way. It happens to be the foundation of the Fellowship's teachings. It's a system of self-development created by the mystic George Gurdjieff in the early 20th century. His student, Peter Ospensky, wrote books about Gurdjieff's teachings and helped bring them to the masses. Gurdjieff taught that there are three typical ways to attain enlightenment. One, difficult physical exercise. Two, controlling the emotions. And three, a yogic mastering of the mind. But Gurdjieff fused all three and built on them to create a fourth way to awaken. And, if you do the work, to become fully conscious. These books promise to provide the framework to evolve into a conscious being. They're heady and captivating, but often convoluted and disorienting. And they teach that if you really want to awaken, you need to be in a fourth way school with a teacher who understands how to guide you. So you're in the thick of one of these books, confused and yearning for an outlet to discuss this new information. And there's this bookmark. It says Aspinsky Gurdjieff Centers Accepting Students, with a list of centers in major cities around the world and phone numbers for each one. You didn't look for a school. The school found you. The fellowship is not officially connected to Gurdjieff or Aspinsky. It just suggested it was. But you don't know that. You call the number. So I came to my perspective meeting. This is Marcus, one of Robert's most devoted followers. You met him in the last episode. I was wearing bell-bottom blue jeans, a green army jacket, black paratrooper boots, hair down to about where your elbow is, uh, a mustache that you could have cut off and put it in a pipe and made 50 people happy for a week. That was the world I came out of. And I came in there and I sat down right square in front of the person leading the meeting. I looked like a hell's angel or something. By this time in his life, Marcus had tried every guru and spiritual group he could find. New Krishnamurti. I'd done dervish dancing with John Bennett's group. Shad Field. Timothy Leary. California, you know. All the people that were around in the 60s. This was the age of Aquarius. 
there was an explosion of New Age religions and cults. The word is within thee! The Rajneesh movement, Maharishi and Transcendental Meditation, the People's Temple led by Jim Jones. I am God. You are God. That's the only God you know. But the Fellowship of Friends stood apart from all that, while many other groups taught radical ideas like socialism and free love. Because sex is your life force. The Fellowship pushed chastity, elegance, and a deep appreciation for classical art and literature. This wasn't a commune of free spirits. It was a sacred elite for cerebral aristocrats. And they had teaching centers all over the world. But these weren't jam-packed flats or ashrams. The Fellowship rented beautiful estates near major cities, outside New York, Paris, Frankfurt. They rented a place in London big old mansion that was falling down out in the countryside. That's where we went. This is Ames, an ex-member who now lives about an hour and a half from Apollo. I also spoke to him in the first episode. I joined the fellowship in late 1977. The London Centre had just opened. It all seemed pretty interesting, very personable, very intelligent people. He was living in this stately mansion with other young intellectuals, all studying the same philosophical ideas. And after about a month, the news was dropped that they had a teacher and that he was coming to visit. So in comes this guy with an entourage of young men, fabulously dressed, silk suit, nicely trimmed beard and nicely groomed. And of course, in those days, he had brown hair and tall and imposing and didn't speak much, but had this air of gravitas. I was in a bit of a daze because things had just turned a big corner there for me, you know. So we had a grand dinner with the best wine that we could afford, and I liked the idea of raising things up, including my internal state. After that experience, Ames decided to move to the Fellowship's headquarters in Northern California in the late 70s. I think I was one of the first people from Europe to come over here and see what they were doing on this farm vineyard kind of a thing. How did you decide? Was it, was it immediate once the teacher came out? And- oh, this whole thing had become the central thing of my life. I was met at the airport by a group of people just in a complete daze, uh, driven up here, and then everybody else lived in tents at that time. So I found a tent. Robert lived in one of the only houses, and he was driven around in a 1974 Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow with a license plate that read Oracle. I was put to work straight away restoring some antiques and bits and pieces that were being collected. In the beginning, Ames wasn't paid, but he had meals, a tent, and a direct connection to the source of the teaching. A powerful personality, and I want to be in on this, you know. I just took his word for it that he was more conscious and more awake than I was. And all men are created equally slaves to sleep. This is a recording of Robert in the 70s, where you can hear him teaching with a hypnotic drone. Man is not the highest being on the earth. He is simply the highest physical being. There are metaphysical beings on the earth. They were called gods, it would be, too alluring. And so we have a fresh term, conscious beings. In these lessons, Robert gives his students tools to awaken, to become conscious beings. At first, his teachings were based on the fourth way, But then he started getting messages from the 44 angels. They didn't always make sense, but it was all a part of the play. An elephant can only be an elephant. A human can be immortal. 
Walt Whitman said of himself, indeed, to be a god. In the very beginning, Robert gave lessons at cafes and restaurants. When more students joined, he taught at people's homes. Eventually, students gave him enough money to purchase about a thousand acres. So when you got there, it was pretty austere. It was, there, there wasn't much built. So when I first came, the land, the infrastructure was being developed. The highfalutin dining was already in place. They might be feeding, in those days, 250 people that had come in from working on the vineyard and that kind of stuff. Very interesting juxtaposition from tired, sweaty, 12 hours in the sunshine to this fine dining and that kind of stuff. Over the weekend, everybody would stop at six, have a shower, and then get dressed in beautiful clothes and meander over to the town hall. There'd be a concert by professionals like the Beaux-Arts Trio. Then they started importing people from Russia, you know, genuine Bolshoi ballet dancers. And then after a while, Burton decided that we would start doing performances. So he just picked out people. You will learn the flute, you will learn the violin, you will learn the trumpet. People would work in the vineyard, then they were given an hour to practice each day. So an orchestra was formed. And then a choir. This is a concert by Apollo's orchestra and chorus. They've been performing regularly at Apollo, the Fellowship's compound, since 1981. There were also balls, festivals, ballets, operas. And of course, theater. There is a time that men are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. So I was just absolutely in love with it. The hard work, 18-hour days, beautiful music and impressions in the evening. It really is incredible. I certainly did think that he was a man with higher consciousness because everybody else believed it. There was all these extraordinary things happening around, you know, a vineyard being built. They're not just building Apollo with hard manual labor. Every member has to give a 10% tithing, though some wealthier members give more. And a lot of that money goes towards curating art and high culture, meant to help them awaken. Most of the art is displayed in Robert's home, and as the fellowship grows, so does their bounty. By the late 70s, they were bringing in a few million a year. Robert started traveling. He said it was so he could gain new knowledge by looking at the art and works of the 44 angels and other conscious beings. But he was also going on shopping sprees. Gradually, I, many others, began to realize he's addicted to shopping. He can't stop. This is Alan Green, another ex-member you met in the first episode. He's an antique junkie. He really is a junkie. He was buying European painting, French or Italian. There were the Meissen porcelain in Germany. Another was Ming furniture from the actual Ming period. And then the final thing, which probably exceeds all the rest combined, would be clothing. These just really 
flowery, beautiful shirts. He has hundreds of pairs of shoes, a hundred hats and jewelry. He wears a ring on every finger, a jewel in his lapel here and another one here and another medallion hanging over his neck and everything perfectly matched or coordinated. What's the deal with the animals? So the first ones to come were the camels. Only white camels, they're more rare. Poitro donkeys, a specialized kind of donkey from ostriches, water buffalo, peacocks. I suppose there had always been cattle. Oh yes, there was the parrots. Then there's the dogs. These are Cavalier King Charles. They're in the Brittany Spaniel family. Nothing ordinary. Robert essentially got whatever he desired. He did what he wanted. But his students had to abide by strict rules that were always changing. No smoking cigarettes. Ah, the no smoking pot rule. No TV or outside media. No pop or rock music. No more Metallica. You couldn't say certain words. There was a time when you couldn't say the word I. People had to give up pets that weren't purebred, but they couldn't complain about it. No expressions of negativity. No gossip. There is even an exercise against judgment. There was no crossing legs, no humor, no athletic activity. You weren't allowed to go swimming. No oriental rugs, no eyeglasses, no pants for women. Wear a skirt. And one of the most profitable rules. No sex outside of marriage. Some students were watching to see who is having sex with whom, and it's not married, you see. There was a sex police. I had to pay $1,500. You had to pay $1,500 for having... Because I had sex with a woman, I was not married. The first time you pay $1,500, the second you are expelled. Yeah, no one in the fellowship was allowed to have sex outside of marriage. Well, none of the students, at least. And when people broke rules, there were punishments, fines. Of course, for some, there were much greater costs. You were told to have an abortion if you got pregnant. And a lot of women had abortions, but they did it because the teacher didn't want children. He said it wasn't time for children to be on the, quote, arc. That's after the break. The fellowship, like most religious institutions, is systemically patriarchal. It's led by Robert, most of the top brass are men, and ex-members told me Robert teaches that women are spiritually inferior. This came up when I was interviewing Robert's ex-housekeeper, Marlene. Her living room is filled with religious paintings and statuettes. Notice with the little figurines, there's a lot of powerful spiritual women here. That's Archangel Raphael, who sometimes is called a woman and sometimes is called a man. Yeah, I've got Mary with the baby, and, and then next to her I've got Kuan Yin, who's a Buddhist female figure, who was originally a male, who saw that the people were hungry, and so he turned himself into a woman in order to be able to feed the people, so rice is the milk, breast milk of Kuan Yin. Which makes me think about, if you look at the list of, of Robert's angels, it's almost all men. <laughs> Is there a female on it? I can't remember now. Oh, Elizabeth I. Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, that's it. He did have her. Elizabeth is an anomaly. Ex-members told me Robert has taught that it's difficult for women to become conscious beings. He really, really couldn't stand females. He said, I would have no women in the fellowship at all, except that there are some things that guys are just not good at, <laughs> like cleaning the house. 
Some women, I think, felt very second-class citizens. This is Mary, another ex-member who was in the fellowship at the same time as Marlene. You also heard from her in the first episode. I think women had to pay a pretty high price. But they set that aside because they wanted the fourth way, they wanted the teaching, they wanted this community. And then finally you realize your psyche is imploding because you have so many unresolved and weird things going on. You know, the cognitive dissonance becomes intolerable at a certain point. Cognitive dissonance is something a lot of ex-members talk about. How remaining in the fellowship meant accepting conflicting beliefs. Women had to wear skirts. There was all this, you know, very ultra old-fashioned feminine requirement. You were supposed to not have sex before you're married. You were told to have an abortion if you got pregnant. And a lot of women had abortions, but they did it because the teacher didn't want children. He said it wasn't time for children to be on the, quote, ark. Remember, Robert refers to Apollo as an ark, filled with everything needed to start a new civilization. Several other people told me about this abortion rule, a way for Robert to control which characters could be in his play. One ex-member told me Robert sent down a directive to his wife to terminate her pregnancy. He asked me not to use his name. I'll call him Nathan. When my wife became pregnant, he said that the child should be aborted. His explanation was that the child would be born too soon to be included on the ark. And being the fool that I was, I accepted the explanation. It wasn't my best act here on earth. My wife didn't agree to it. It's kind of against her will, but um, she was surrounded by people who wanted it done. So it, it occurred, and uh, life wasn't the same between us after that. They divorced. Nathan eventually left the fellowship, and she stayed in. It's kind of ironic because she wasn't really a so-called seeker at the time, but she followed me out there to Oregon House. I got her into it. She remarried after I left. She never had kids. Ames said he actually witnessed Robert Burton ordering someone to get an abortion. I was present in a hotel room in New York when Burton told somebody who called to go have an abortion. I could hear somebody crying at the other end. She was begging Burton, saying that, This is not flaunting your will. I have to have a child for medical reasons. No, you have to have an abortion. Marlene also told me a story about this rule. My younger sister, he ordered her to get an abortion when she was quite a ways along. And she was really too far along to be doing that. I think that was one of the many things that really hurt her mind. Yeah, she just killed herself a few years ago, but gosh... There was another rule in the early days. Homosexual relationships were forbidden. Here's Mary again. When I came to the fellowship, I was in a relationship with a woman. I fall in love with who I fall in love with, and it just happened to be a woman. So we were forced to make that decision. And we decided to give it up. You used to be able to see the teacher personally and... I sat down and I said, what's wrong with sexual relationships between the same sex? And he said, man to man, woman to woman is cosmically wrong. So I said, okay. Again, 
these rules only seem to apply to the students. And then I fell madly in love with a man. Robert was extremely hot for him. And this gentleman had been one of the young men that Robert pursued without any holds barred. So <laughs> this got really interesting. And yet, oddly enough, I still trusted Robert as my teacher because I wanted to believe all the other things that were so seemed so good to me. And I mean, many people that joined the fellowship were very idealistic, and I was among them. And when did you first find out that Robert was sexually involved with students? In my gut, I knew what was going on, but I wouldn't admit it to myself. During this period that Robert was telling fellowship members not to have sex outside of marriage and that it was wrong to have homosexual relationships, he was, allegedly, sexually exploiting his male students. Many members knew this was happening to some extent. They had a hunch or heard rumors or saw things, but few people understood the scope as well as Marlene. Yeah, they were being sodomized, and I figured that out. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not really hard. <laughs> Yeah, oh gosh, I remember this one guy, John. As Robert's housekeeper in the early days of the fellowship, Marlene had a thorough understanding of the teacher's lifestyle. Can you tell me some of the things you first started seeing, like details that made you realize that something was going on? I was down there seven days a week. Every day there were empty tubes of lubricating jelly in his wastebasket. That's a heck of a lot of sex. <laughs> And also, at the same time, I was doing the young guy's laundry. It was caked with this lubricating jelly. Marlene was especially close to one of these men who she believes Robert was sexually exploiting. My friend Brian, Robert kept him for about 20 years. What do you mean kept him? Kept in his house. One time, he singled me out at his house and he said... I'm having all the other people move out of my house except Brian. You know, he was saying this to me to, to hurt me because he thought I was in love with Brian. I would see them together when I would come down to clean, and Robert would be saying to Brian, now, Brian, you need to take a nap this afternoon. And Brian would be standing there just white with rage. Eventually, Robert had him taken away and dumped in Sacramento because he started to lose his mind after 20 years of this sadistic behavior. Robert just threw him out. It's difficult for me to understand why Marlene would tolerate this kind of predatory behavior. But then, after our interview, she takes me into her garage where she keeps her old diaries. Okay, so let's check the garage. You shut the door because I don't want the cats to come out here. These journals show how devoted she was to Robert. In June 1979, she wrote that Robert is our only direct way of speaking with the angels that wrote the play and guide us. The next month, she wrote, Robert is life. Without my connection to him, I would die. The 20-something Marlene who wrote these entries is completely enthralled and terrified of her godlike teacher. She actually believed that she would die if she left. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, willful blindness was going on <laughs> on a terrible scale. Uh... I'm starting to see why Robert was able to get away with it without anyone trying to stop him. After speaking to Marlene, I connect with a woman who Robert did seem to have a certain type of respect for. 
she was a part of a small group of women who had grown up in high society. These women taught Robert how to put on the airs of a refined gentleman. I want to interview her because I think she also saw a side of Robert that few people knew. I meet her at her condo in San Diego. Hey. Hi. Welcome. Nice to meet you. You too. Hi. Yeah. Her house is filled with Eastern art and fine dining ware. Her decor is all turquoise. She's dressed in all pink. Did you fantasize what I might look like? I had an image. I have to say, this was not it. She has a youthful exuberance for her age. Uh-huh. I'm 71. I don't look at it and I don't act it. For your drinking pleasure, I have water. I have bubbly water. I have uh, Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay. She has a whole setup of sparkling water, wine, nuts, and so chocolate. I put there so you'd know what kind of chocolate you're getting. <laughs> the chocolates right. even have labels. I can't say that I've ever been treated so well really? with an interview upon well, arrival. I was raised this way. Right. I taught Robert a lot about this etiquette. By the way, this is Dara. <laughs> My name is Dara Haskell. For a year and a half, I was Althea Haskell because Robert made me change my name and uh, because Dara didn't sound English enough. But Dara wasn't shy about pushing back. And after a year and a half, I told him, I can't do this anymore. And he said, okay. But it never, never sat right with me. I taught him a lot about crystal and china and antique jewelry. He liked my eye. By the way, this is a very, very good piece. Whoops. I brought it out special for you. I don't bring it out often. This is called a lobster piece. <laughs> I didn't even realize that's a lobster. Of course you don't notice the lobster. Oh. It's quite valuable, actually. I would never sell it. Dara left the fellowship in the 1980s, but she's still astonished by Robert's teachings. He was my guru. He was my master girl, whenever I had a question, he gave me the most wonderful, practical ways to become what he called closer to God. Dara says she knew Robert was exploiting some of the young male members, that he would pick men he liked to travel with him, to be in his entourage. She told me that another member would point out to her the men that Robert had chosen. She would whisper to me, coach him. Robert wants him to travel with him, coach him. What did coaching mean? that Robert wants to have sex with you, un almost undoubtedly. Coach them in, as in like? Tell them the facts, Come. which was two lines. There's sex here. That's what's happening here on these trips. That's the whole coaching. They had no idea. He only preyed on heterosexuals. He only preyed on young men that they had no idea. This is something everyone has made clear to me. They all say Robert only targeted straight men. Imagine these confused, naive young men, barely adults. They've left their lives, their families behind to come to this strange place. They've taken on a new name, new identity, and they find out they've been selected to travel with their teacher. It seems like a great honor. They don't know what that entails. Few were told in advance what was expected of them, or maybe they found out when they were alone with Robert for the first time. If Dara felt the need to warn these men, and if she was so close to Robert, I wanted to know if she ever called him out. Did you ever directly ask him about sex? No, it was pretty much forbidden. Right at the end, when I told him I'm leaving, 
I said, I have to leave because I can no longer reconcile your behavior. And he's looking down and he said, well, I hope that you change your mind and stay. I really want you to stay. You're so important to me. And I said, but your behavior, Robert, I can no longer work with it. And then I stopped and I looked at him and his eyes are down. And I said, and the proof is you cannot raise your head. You cannot look me in the eyes and you haven't for a long time. You're unable to look at me anymore. And the most pathetic thing happened and I will never forget this and I will show you. I can't say it, but I will show you. This is what he did. You're me, okay? Mm-hmm. You just barely looked up at me and squinted and well, my, batted your my eyes. My eyes were closed almost, almost closed. He tried to open them and he couldn't. And I said, see yeah. why I'm leaving? This is why. Yeah. Goodbye. He is an amazing conscious teacher and also he's a sick fuck. Dara knew about Robert's behavior much of the time that she was in the fellowship. It's ultimately why she left. I think about all the people I met on my last trip to Apollo. Jack, Peter, Marcus. Wouldn't they know? They're still there. After the break, I speak to some of the men who lived and traveled with Robert. I thought he could ruin my life, that I would be cast to the pits of hell. I mean, he told us these things would happen to us if we left or opposed him. I want to give you another warning. The rest of this episode is going to include very explicit discussions about sexual assault. Marlene, Dara, and Ames all gave me a good understanding of how the fellowship was built, how people joined, and what they heard or saw of Robert's alleged abuse. But I was also able to speak to several ex-members who told me about their direct experiences with the teacher. You heard from Philip at the beginning of this episode. Can you start by telling me how you got into the fellowship? Uh, I joined on the East Coast. And at the beginning, um, there was a lot of what we call love bombing. So very quickly, I felt I had found a place where I was accepted and a sense that I was part of something that I sorely lacked. You get the most clear messages from the source, the teacher. So there was this great pull to California, this indoctrination and grooming going on that put him on a huge pedestal. Before Philip moved out to Apollo, basically everything he knew about Robert came from the journals of his teachings, which were published by the fellowship and distributed to all the centers. The journals that we received had quotes by the teacher. I've read through most of these journals, trying to see what else they might reveal about Robert and what kind of grooming was happening. They're filled with quotes from Robert, but also images and stories from the ancient world. There's one illustration that stands out to me that I think about a lot. It's an illustration of the Greek myth, the rape of Ganymede. Ganymede was a beautiful mortal boy. Zeus fell in love with him, 
needed to have him. So Zeus transformed into an eagle, abducted Ganymede, and flew the boy to Mount Olympus, where Ganymede became his servant and sex slave. There used to be a marble statue of Ganymede at Apollo. Two years after joining, Philip moved to California to be closer to the source of the teachings, Robert. It seemed to be a great privilege to be close to him. Eventually, Philip was invited to one of Robert's special dinners. He wasn't sure why he was chosen, but it was an honor. He was later asked to live in Robert's home with some of the other chosen men. Then one night, Robert asked him to come to his bed. And so being woken up after a long day, was sleep-deprived, uh, I felt okay, you know, you know, seemed innocuous. And we were both wearing pajamas. A guy got into bed with him, and he proceeded to put his thigh over my groin. And the act of warmth and pressure on my groin gave me an erection. And uh, he then told me that uh, he, I was with an angel and that not to worry about anything and that when I climaxed, he would receive me. Later, there was anal sex. He preferred to be the receptor of anal sex. He would put the lubrication on me and show me what to do. There was a lot of emphasis on not staining the sheets, and I do remember at one point he uh, did some rimming on me and then kissed me on the lips, and I could just smell all this kind of fecal smell, and I was just utterly repulsed. Uh, it felt like a you know, a way of pushing my limits, you know. Uh, it's uh, something that I feel ashamed about, having been manipulated to feel beholden to this person who acted as a father image and exploited by that person. Someone might say, well, you know, nobody ever held a gun to your head. Well, in fact, there was a gun, because if you left, you were considered dead. You know, if you left the group, uh, Robert uh, claimed that it would have been better that you have never been born. And uh, later, I, fa I realized that there were others uh, that were in the same position, and it became this thing that we did, <laughs> which nobody talked about. Uh, eventually, it started to you know, work on me that here's a person who treated others not as human beings, but as objects, as toys. Other ex-members told me about similar experiences. At some point, he invited me to come into his room, and uh, I had my experience. I spoke to this man, Joseph, over Skype. He joined in the late 70s when he was 21. He was gentle. But he clearly, you know, had a plan. He knew what he was going to do, and I'd never done anything like that. He didn't want to have sex with homosexuals. He only wanted straight guys. Every survivor I spoke to told me they've always identified as straight. They had never been involved with the man before. And he told me what to do. He told me physically how to have homosexual sex. That's what he told me to do. And I remember there was a point where he referred to himself as a goddess. When I think of being 22 and being subjected to this 
kind of manipulation, knowing how pure I was in trying to do something good with my life and that somebody used that to get something they want. It's an abuse of power. It is like Harvey Weinstein, but it wasn't about a part in a movie. Shit, it's about your part in going to heaven. Speaking with survivors, I saw patterns. For instance, Robert said similar things to all of them. A goddess in a man's body, I think, was his line. This is Nathan. He's the man you heard from earlier who said his ex-wife was forced to get an abortion. I was young and naive, and I was still in the mindset that to be closer to the teacher and to do what the teacher asked was going to somehow aid my spiritual growth. There's a certain kind of psychological coercion that goes on, in a way, because of the situation. You've given your power over to this person, so it's easy to be persuaded to do things you wouldn't naturally or normally do. I don't think of myself as gay. I had never had that experience prior. Burton had uh, arranged for me to guard the house that he was living in. He started off with him uh, asking me to rub his back. Uh, which I guess, <laughs> you know, the teacher asked me to rub his back. Uh, I rubbed his back, and uh, the sex began from there. You probably heard this idea that if you found the school and then left, you were, you'd be damned, damned in hell if you left the school. Leaving the school meant you would go to hell, but obeying the teacher was the path to heaven. He was the golden chain to heaven. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. Here's another ex-member who asked me to change his voice out of fear of retaliation from the fellowship. How would you characterize what he did to you? Oh, it's, it's definitely rape. It's a, it's a moral rape. It's a spiritual rape. He was the teacher. I thought he could ruin my life, that I would, I would be cast to the, to the pits of hell. I mean, he told us these things would happen to us if we left or opposed him. He's a sexual predator, first-class sexual predator. How do you give consent in a group where there's no free will? Because there wasn't. In the fellowship, you had to do and be as Robert made you do and be. He's the ruler of the fellowship. He is God. So what's a young guy going to say to God? Because you can't run. There's no place in your mind to turn for information on how to get the hell out of there because all the doors were closed before you even invited to his house. Robert has never been charged with rape. The laws around consent vary from state to state, but having authority over someone does affect their ability to consent. Speaking to survivors, I get a clear picture that they got swept up into something they did not want. From their perspective, these men helped build Apollo, not knowing that they were also building a prison of belief. Robert trapped them inside and then prayed on them. These four men told me how terrible things were within the fellowship in the early days, the 70s through the 90s. But then in the mid-90s, allegations about Robert's behavior became public. It all started when Robert allegedly sexually assaulted a member named Richard Busby. Richard then told friends and family about the abuse and found many others who alleged similar experiences, including, to his horror, his own son. Richard included this in a letter he sent out to other fellowship members to warn them. He wrote, The greatest shock came from my son Troy, who told me that Robert had been actively pursuing him for sex 
from the time he entered the school at age 17. At that point, Robert was about 47. Richard and Troy left the fellowship, and in 1996, Troy filed a lawsuit alleging sexual abuse of a minor. According to the case documents, Robert allegedly told Troy, you have to remember that I did not write the play about Robert Burton. He said he was a goddess in a man's body, and the angels wanted Troy to submit to his sexual advances. The suit asked for $5 million in damages. It was settled out of court. About 100 members reportedly left in response to the allegations, but most stayed in. After the Busby lawsuit, the fellowship made it a strict rule that all prospective members had to be at least 18. And since then, what else has changed? Did the organization do anything to protect its members? Did Robert change his behavior? I wanted to know, is the abuse still going on? To find out, I went back to Apollo. Robert had this initiative to celebrate with like a special love fest where he wanted to have sex with a hundred men. You're taught to look at it that, you know, Robert gives so much energy to the students and you just help to replenish this energy. And this gave him access to unlimited power. Revelations is a Spotify original from Parcast, Blumhouse, Vespucci, and Gilded Audio. This podcast is reported, written, and hosted by me, Jennings Brown. I'll be sharing source material and reporting that didn't make it into the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at tjenningsbrown. Follow me there. If you have any information you'd like to share about the Fellowship of Friends, please email revelationstipline at gmail.com or call 347-480-3527 and leave a voicemail. Production, sound design, editing, and original music by Dan Rosado. Additional production by Whitney Donaldson, Ivana Tucker, Sarah Joyner, and Nick Dooley. Fact-checking by Charles Richter. Opening narration by Viet Horej. Actually, it's Horej. Viet Horej. Artistic director of the Czechoslovak American Marionette Theater. Drew Cole is our content writing lead at Parcast. Executive producers are Jennings Brown and Dan Rosado. At Parcast, Max Cutler and Drew Cole. At Blumhouse, Jason Blum, Chris McCumber, Jeremy Gold, and Mary Licio. At Vespucci, Johnny Galvin and Daniel Turkin. At Gilded Audio, Andy Chug. If you are a survivor of sexual assault and need to talk to someone, call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 or visit hotline.rainn.org. If you are outside the U.S., Pathways Safety International can be reached at 833-SAFE-833. If you or someone you know is having suicidal thoughts, you can speak with someone confidentially by contacting the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or the Crisis Text Line at 741-741.